Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our interesting subject for the program today is the fight for Native American voting rights in southeastern Utah, specifically San Juan County. And our host for the program today is our southeastern Utah correspondent, John Kobosh. Here's John Kobosh. I'm John Kovash, Southeast Utah News Correspondent for Utah Public Radio. Sometime next year, a federal judge will decide whether Native Americans are still being shut out of political power in Utah's San Juan County, where now more than 52% of county residents are Navajo or Ute tribal members. The trial will be presided over by U.S. District Judge Robert Shelby, the same judge who struck down Utah's ban on same-sex marriages last December. At issue will be the claim that voting districts in the county have essentially been gerrymandered to assure a permanent white majority on the county council and school board. The Navajo Human Rights Commission has proposed new district boundaries that would give Indians a chance to win a majority of those seats. San Juan County is home to the mostly white towns of Blanding and Monticello, and to the south the tiny tribal towns of Montezuma Creek, Anath, Bluff, and White Mesa. As far back as 1972, the county was challenged in federal court, accused by Navajos of inhibiting tribal members from running for public office. In 1983, the U.S. Justice Department forced the county to abandon its at-large voting districts because they had the effect of diluting the Indian vote. In 1997, it was even proposed to split the county in two, creating a white county and a reservation county. Now the county's back in court again. In this program, we will talk with Steve Bose, attorney for the Navajo Nation, and with three residents of San Juan County who have become historical local figures. Ken Slate, former crony of author Ed Abbey, Mark Maryboy, the first Native American to hold elected public office in Utah, and Phil Lyman, a current county commissioner recently notorious for leading the ATV protest into Recapture Canyon. We start with Steve Bose, one of the attorneys handling the voting rights lawsuit. We talked in his office in downtown Durango, Colorado. The Constitution requires reapportionment of election districts after each decennial census. The decennial census is something that's required to be conducted by the Constitution. And and the reason that that's done is to ensure what's called one man, one vote, you know, if you have a district that has X number of people in it, an election district that has Y number of people in it, you're supposed to find ways of balancing them so every person's vote counts approximately equally. So after each decennial census, governments are supposed to engage in this process of reapportioning election districts, changing the boundaries to ensure that there is that kind of population equivalence between different districts. And San Juan County, with regard to the school board election districts, of which there are five, uh, hasn't done that for 20 years. And only did it in, with regard to the three county commission election districts after it was brought to their attention that they hadn't done it for almost 30 years. Um, and the reapportionment that they did doesn't comply with constitutional standards. So the purpose of the lawsuit is to ensure that reapportionment is done and that it's done correctly. If it's done correctly, um, what will happen 
is the Indian population in the county has increased dramatically over the last 30 years. And so Indian voters in each of the election, in most of the, in the majority of the election districts uh, will represent the majority of voters in those districts. My understanding is uh, a fair amount of case law has been established uh, in this regard. Well, the Voting Rights Act has been around since the 1960s, and there's been a lot of litigation, mostly uh, in the South. So the procedures for figuring out whether election districts are correctly apportioned are have been hammered out pretty thoroughly in, in a number of United States Supreme Court decisions. And a lot of it is a fairly simple math calculation. Experts who understand census data um, look at the census data over a period of time and, and look at how populations have changed. And then they actually have software. It's, it's GIS-based. You can go in with this software and create maps that are accurate down to a very minute level and draw boundaries for where election districts should lie to make sure that you have a rough equivalency of population in the different election districts. How is it the same and how is it different? You have, a, say, a black or Hispanic population marginalized in the ghetto versus a Native American population marginalized on the res. Well, one of the big differences is that if you're talking about urban populations, you're usually talking about fairly compact areas. So you might be looking at an election district that encompasses a matter of tens of square blocks in a city. Uh, the difference in San Juan County is that the county is enormous and people are scattered all over. There are large areas that are not populated, the areas along the Colorado River, for example. Was there anything that prompted the Navajo Nation to act at this particular time versus three years ago or three years from now? Or They put on a big push in 2000. Um, to make sure that Navajos were properly counted because historically they had been undercounted. The nation has continued that process since then. They also started the process of looking at other kinds of election districts besides the congressional, in addition to the con congressional districts. So they started looking at um, county commission election districts and, and state school board election districts. It came to their attention that there hadn't been any adequate reapportionment in San Juan County, Utah for a very, very long time. Can you characterize some of what you're going to have for this case aside from the, the raw numbers? When you bring a Voting Rights Act claim, the court's going to look at sort of the historical factual context in which the voting discrimination has taken place. You look into things like historical discrimination in education, in health care, on all kinds of different levels. For example, Indians weren't, by law, allowed to vote in Utah until 1957. Indians had been, become citizens of the United States in the 1920s, but uh, several states, including Utah, refused to allow, allow them the right to vote, period. Um, in Utah that lasted until 1957 and, and we're sort of dealing with the long-term impacts of that kind of discrimination even now. 
education is another example. Um, our co-counsel, Mr. Swenson, in the 1970s uh, recognized there was a problem with the fact that the county wasn't providing adequate schools for Navajos in the Navajo reservation portion of the county. And so a lawsuit was brought that forced the county to build high school in Montezuma Creek, Utah, in Monument Valley, and more recently out at Navajo Mountain. So all those kinds of discrimination, those, those historical facts, will be a part of what the court will have to look at. I think there are people in San Juan County who have real concerns about what they view as people who are entitled to services from the county, but who do not pay taxes for those services. And they, a lot of people look at that and see this huge logical disconnect. You know, why should they get services? Why should we have to build high schools? Why should we have to pave roads when the people who are going to be served by those facilities don't pay taxes to the state, don't pay taxes to the county, um, and are served arguably by this totally separate sovereign government, the Navajo Nation. You know, why doesn't the Navajo Nation provide this stuff? It's not racism. I think it's an inability to sort of go beyond what seems like this real logical inconsistency. You know, they don't often recognize that as citizens of the, the United States, as citizens of the state of Utah, Indians who live within the county have rights under the federal constitution and under the state constitution. And the county has to make good on those constitutional obligations. So I did a couple of cases against the county when I was living over there. Um, the county was collecting a couple of different types of taxes on the reservation that they had clearly no legal authority to collect from Indians. And I can recall having a meeting with the county commission while we were, this was in the 1980s, uh, when we were in the middle of the litigation where, um, and I think it was Cal Black, basically said, well, if we can't collect these taxes, then we're not going to provide the services. You know, that, that is, tip, is often the reaction of county governments when they're told they can't collect these taxes. It's not precisely true that Indians aren't paying taxes. Individual Indians may not pay taxes, but there have been huge, huge amounts of money um, that have been taken out of the reservation uh, in the form of oil and gas severance taxes and so on um, that went into the county coffers. Um, so sure, individual Indians may not be paying income tax. Is the county deriving no revenue from the, the reservation lands? Not true. You know, there are huge amounts of revenues that over the years they've uh, taken off the reservation. Um, you know, maybe it's some calculation was made that as the oil and gas wells sort of play out and the revenues start dipping, uh, it's going to cost more to provide services to the part, southern part of the county than uh, the revenue that you're taking out of those gas wells. So some of these issues are purely math issues. So we have some motions pending that are basically along those lines of say, saying to the court, hey, look at the numbers, look at the mapping data, give us judgment on 
those issues. How those motions are resolved could have an enormous impact on how long this goes on. Any kind of chance that this could get settled? There's always a chance that the cases could get settled, and we are always open to um, any kind of reasonable settlement offers that come our way, but none have come our way. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're hearing a series of reports from our southeastern Utah correspondent, John Kobosh. Very interesting and important topic, voting rights for Native Americans in San Juan County in southeastern Utah. In that county, now more than 52% of residents are Navajo or Ute tribal members. And at issue, in an upcoming uh, federal court case, federal judge will decide whether Native Americans are still being shut out of political power in San Juan County. Navajo Nation is claiming that voting districts in the county have been gerrymandered to assure a permanent white majority in local elections. We heard there from uh, Steve Bowes, attorney for the Navajo Nation. Coming up, John Kovash's interviews with three residents of San Juan County with uh, differing opinions. Ken Slate. Legendary former crony of equally legendary author Ed Abbey, Mark Maryboy, the first Native American to hold elected public office in Utah, and Phil Lyman, a current county commissioner, recently famous for leading an ATV protest into Recapture Canyon. If you'd like to comment on this issue, there are several ways you can do that. UPRAxis at gmail.com, UPRAxis at gmail.com. And uh, you can join us at 1-800-826-1495. We're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio, and we have this comment has come in from Dave. Dave says, looking ahead to uh, the conversation with Phil Lyman, he says, based on Mr. Lyman's recent behavior in Recapture Canyon, he apparently has little concern about sites that are sacred to Native Americans, so it's doubtful that he's too concerned about the voting rights of Native Americans. Unless I miss my guess, he probably believes that they, Native Americans, are cursed with a dark skin. But what I'd like to know is, did Mr. Lyman or any of his cronies break the law when they re-entered Recapture Canyon? And if so, have any of them been held accountable for their actions? That's the commented question of Dave. That uh, interview, John Kobach's interview with Phil Lyman, will be coming up in about 20 minutes. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cache Valley ENT and the Allergy Clinic with providers Dr. Wood, Benyon, and Blotter and PA Lindsay Humes, practicing ear, nose, and throat medicine, allergy services, and facial, plastic, and reconstructive surgery, 753-7880. And Utah Festival, Opera, and Musical Theater, July 9 through August 9 in Logan with 128 festival events, including concerts, classes, and performances of Les Miserables, The Student Prince, Oklahoma, and Vanessa. Details at utahfestival.org. BBC. BBC. Hello, I'm Ross Atkins. Welcome to World Have Your Say. Coming up on Outlook after the news, the Somali journalist who witnessed the murder of his boss. Hello, I'm Steve Evans. Welcome to Business Daily. Coming up, the big fight. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour. The BBC is your gateway to the world, and this is your BBC station. Monday through Saturday afternoons at 3 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Today on the program, a series of reports from our southeastern Utah correspondent, John Kobosh. 
It's uh, the issue is the fight for Native American voting rights in San Juan County in extreme southeastern Utah. Coming up at the end of the program, John's interview with Phil Lyman, current county commissioner, recently famous for leading an ATV protest into Recapture Canyon. We've already had a comment from David about uh, Mr. Lyman. Uh, You can keep those comments and questions coming at 1-800-826-1495, upraxis at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at Utah Public Radio. Here once again is our southeastern Utah correspondent, John Kovash. Ken Slade, a white Mormon rancher and environmentalist, is best known around Moab as the inspiration for one of the characters in Ed Abbey's The Monkey Wrench Gang. What's less known is that for many years, Slate was a firebrand activist for Navajo civil rights, going up against the likes of Cal Black, one of the infamous founders of the Sagebrush Rebellion. Slate lives up at his Pat Creek Ranch in the LaSalle Mountains. I interviewed him in his Quonset hut that serves as his office. Start me out with how you first came to be associated with folks in, in San Juan County. It goes way back to the days of Father Liebler. A bunch of us from the University of Utah came down here on a spring break type of thing, and uh, we camped out there at Father Liebler's mission down near Bluff. I was so intrigued about the country, of course. Monument Valley is not the most beautiful place in the world. All of that started gelling in me then of course after I started river running river running well I was down there a lot and and I love the Native American people the Indian people are to me the most genuine people in the world they have their problems there's no doubt about it in my mind sometimes I equate with them that I'm one of them but of course I wasn't they made all these Indian people conform, and I had a real problem with the Mormon Church. At first, I thought it was good, but then the Mormon Church come and take their kids and all that, and try to transform the Indian people. Who were uh, some of the first Navajos that you you met and came to know? Never a few years back, I got acquainted with Mark Maryboy. He was a commissioner of San Juan County because of the Department of Justice came in and forced them to have a San Juan commissioner. That was the beginning of uh, my political stuff down here. And Mark Maryboy was a great mentor. I first met Mark. He called me up and said, Got a problem with these aircraft. They make a great big circle around the Navajo Nation. They wouldn't let those aircraft zoom over Salt Lake City and the Mormon area and all that stuff up at Salt Lake. They chose to put it down over the Navajo Nation. And that's where Mark Maryboy and I started working on that. It took us three or four years to get that stopped. Voting rights and all that. That was a long time ago, and, you know, uh, they don't have a lot of money, the, most of those Navajo peoples. Few did. When you were uh, not in the same culture, you're relegated to the side, and that's what San Juan County has done for years. There's been a lot of good help from some of the people in San Juan County, 
along the way. But predominantly, politically, they really pushed the Navajo and the Ute off to the side. And they are doing that today. They are our people, too. They are our citizens. And uh, if they were honest down there today, they can see that there's more Navajo people than there are whites. We'll get back on the separation of the county when we got going on it. We said things are not right here. And I sold this to Cal Black. He's the commissioner then. And then they, they brought up the idea of uh, we'll split the county. Have one, one county, San Juan County, and another county, maybe the Navajo County. I don't know what it would have been. And they were going to split the county on reservation lines. That was wrong. That gives the Utah Navajos very little. They should have, if they're going to talk about splitting the county, split it on Aboriginal lines. Where were the Navajo before? Even settlement. That's when the talk started dwindling. When you're going to take some Aboriginal lands, they the, the white people wouldn't have it. That's interesting because the university did that study saying, oh, this would be bad for the Navajos because they wouldn't have as much working capital, and that's kind of passed around as the reason that never went anywhere. When they found out it was going to hurt the white people more, take away their wealth, the voting rights. Everybody has a right in their community to, to vote on an equal basis as they do in Blandy. They have a great political machine there in Blanding. I mean, uh, the Mormon thing and uh, the, the Republican thing and all. And I proposed this way back when I was the head of the Democratic machine in San Juan County as a chairman. I made this proposal, and I think it still holds. We divide it up into five sections instead of the three. Take away the commission and make it a council, and it would make it equal all the way down the board. It didn't fly. It didn't even fly at first with the Navajo. We needed the Department of Justice to come back in. That's what I love about this uh, suit that Eric Swenson and the Navajo attorneys are bringing. I think that uh, if we win this case, I say we, Eric and all the Navajo folks that's doing the, I think we're going to see a big change. I don't think there'll be an, any movement now to split the county. If they do, we'll get back to square one. All that work that we had in the past helped. And the Department of Justice, they helped. Whether or not this suit goes all the way, whatever, negotiated settlements or whatnot, I think the Department of Justice is going to have to come in. They have to come in again, and uh, they they used to send, when I was down there, observers to make sure that there was no intimidation. Uh, look, all over America today, that's a big issue. People trying to keep from somebody else from voting instead of them going out and saying, everybody come and vote. This issue's, you know, the the voting rights battle in San Juan County. We're more than three decades now of, of this battle going on. And a few years back, you wrote a piece in the Zephyr where you 
deplored the fact that that the one thing that didn't seem to change in San Juan County is the level of racism. They all say we're not racist, but I know different. When I was campaigning down there, I'd go into various different places of business, and it brought up to me there was intense racism among quite a sizable number. Those people, those Mormons, what in the hell they're doing down there? But then they say the Mormons are saying, "Well, what those damned old Indians?" I've I've marched with the Navajo up in Salt Lake. I've marched down the White Mesa area with the Navajo in protest, and I will do it again and again and again. But I do know that if you run for politics in San Juan County especially representatives you're trying to get the vote of the Navajo or even trying to get a Navajo to run. Uh, it's a big endeavor. The county was not pushing the tourism industry of the Navajo Nation. They left them off their lists. It all had to do with white people business. When I started pushing for let's bring in Native American businesses and their pursuits. They rebelled, and it took me a hell of a long time to rectify that. It's better today than it ever has been. So maybe there are, maybe there is progress. I don't know. I think that money still predominates. That was Ken Slate, legendary rabble-rouser of Southeast Utah. The story of Mark Maryboy, his mentor, would make a good Hollywood movie. Born on the Navajo Reservation, Mark Maryboy became a boxer, a rodeo cowboy, a college graduate, and a prominent Native American activist, and that was all before his historic election to public office. I interviewed Mark in the student library at the USU campus in Blanding. I was born on, at the St. Christopher's Mission, uh, right east of Bluff, Utah on the Navajo Reservation on the south side of the San Juan River. I uh, went to school uh, in Bluff Elementary School and then high school here in Blanding, Utah. Graduated from San Juan High. Then I uh, attended uh, University of Utah. Graduated in 1978. Um, worked off the reservation for a while and then came back uh, to the reservation. When's the last time you did any rodeo cowboying? Uh, i say last year. Really? <laughs> yes. And how old are you? I am now uh, 58 years old. Uh, most of the um, guys that I used to rodeo with are now uh, considered senior citizens and I still uh, try to be 16. What stage of your life were you boxing? I've been boxing uh, all the way up to, uh, I'd say, age 50. But my prime was between 16 and probably 35. 
Now, you've, you have observed a lot of history uh, of this county. Uh, do you think it's getting better, or uh, some people seem to feel hopeless, or uh, is it changing? Any time when you have a minority population, spe specifically with Native Americans, they are sovereign nations with treaties uh, with the United States government, and unfortunately, sometimes those issues clashes with the uh, county government. In some ways, uh, people are uh, a little bit more educated now, and the society seems to be maturing. Unfortunately, I think discrimination still is very strong among the people. What are some ways that, that, that people react? Uh, it was said that there's still a lot of problems with the way the school system works and it ends up being discriminatory. Native American population in San Juan County is still is uh, bigger than the white population, but uh, as far as the school board, there are more uh, non-Native Americans who are on the school board. So for that reason, I think a lot of times the needs of the students, academic needs are overlooked. I guess it was back in the 90s they did that study about whether to just split into two counties? I think that was an idea that um, surfaced uh, when, I, when I was a county commissioner uh, simply because uh, Navajos were not getting the um, services that they felt like they deserved from the county and they felt like it was best to just uh, split the county since most of the revenues, oil and gas revenue, was being produced on the reservation. But Navajos backed off on that uh, issue. But I think it's still um, out there and eventually that might become another issue. You hear some, uh, not just here, but in some other counties that have sovereign lands, people claiming that they don't pay as much taxes and don't carry their weight as far as paying for county services. Do you hear that argument here? You uh, hear that argument all the time. For some reason, that blame is pla always placed on Native Americans. And you have to remember that all of this uh, structure of sovereignty was created by Congress. So Congress has to fix that. What would be your best hope for how this gets gets resolved eventually? What's your best case scenario? People have to realize that Native Americans were here before non-Natives. You're talking about millions and millions of acres that was taken away from, from them. I think in the minds of many Native Americans, they want to see justice. They want to see equal treatment. Uh, as far as not paying tax, I think Congress is... Uh, pursuing every year to abrogate the treaties of Native Americans. So Native Americans need to uh, work hard, uh, probably even more so than your average person out on the street, uh, get good education, pursue a career there. I think that's the only um, choice we have as Native Americans. Now, am I correct that you, you were the very first uh, Indian com uh, council member uh, yes, I was the first uh, Native American ever elected to a public office in the state of Utah. It's, it's, a, it's a hard job uh, being a county commissioner or being public official as a Native Americans because uh, your issues are very awkward and different from 
the, the mainstream. Do you feel like you helped pave the way, though, uh, or, or are you still seeing too few tribal members on county councils? I think I paved the way. I think I broke the ice. I think young, upcoming Native Americans uh, will not be reluctant. They will know that I've done it, and I've uh, served 16 years, and you'll see others. Uh, well, as far as uh, reapportionment, um, voters uh, uh, district uh, as you know that's done every 10 years when you have a census count but it's not easy it's very controversial uh, there's the, the fight between the ultra conservative and the, the Republicans the Democrats and redistricting based on the party system. When it comes to uh, Native Americans or minority population, same situation. Uh, as far as, as, far as uh, San Juan County, uh, it's really up to the county commissioners to uh, redistrict, reportion the county based on the population. Uh, back in, this, in the early, <clears throat> in the late uh, 70s, uh, a lawsuit has to be brought before the um, federal courts, and the court had to uh, redistrict, force the county to redistrict, and that's how I became the first county commissioner. I remember when I became a county commissioner, uh, Commissioner Calvin Black told me uh, we were very funded when the, county, when the federal government came here to redistrict San Juan County. We could have done it as a county commissioner, he was telling me, but uh, I think that was just uh, a lip service. Here again, it, it looks like the federal government is going to have to force the county to create a new district with uh, a better, a balanced uh, population. Is there any hope at all that some kind of negotiations could lead to an out-of-court settlement? The, the Navajo is, is open to negotiation. They realize that um, lawsuits and courts are very expensive and it's a drain on the on the state and the county but I don't think the county commissioners are willing to uh, negotiate so it's very unfortunate that we're going to have to, we'll see uh, the federal court um, uh, creating a new district. Do the Navajos and the whites tend to live in their own universe and not mix much with each other, or is it some kind of in-between? Well, um, uh, history will show here in San Juan County there's always reluctance uh, from the white population to work with Native Americans. But uh, eventually it always works out where the two populations are always working together. For some reason, in the beginning, people don't want change. That was Mark Maryboy, longtime Navajo activist from Montezuma Creek. His brother Ken serves on the current San Juan County Commission. Hey, 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 hey,
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A series of uh, interviews from our southeastern Utah correspondent, John Kovash. We appreciate his work there. And uh, coming up following a break, uh, John concludes this Access Utah program on uh, Native American voting rights in southeastern Utah with Phil Lyman, current county commissioner, recently famous for leading an ATV protest into Recapture Canyon. That's coming up following a break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan, open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m., featuring Croque Madame et Croque Monsieur, made with sourdough bread, ham, and cheese. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. And the Utah Humanities Council, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities, online at utahhumanities.org. Coming up on the next Bluegrass Breakdown, he's got 40 years in the business, playing with some of Bluegrass's finest. He's a teacher, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and multi-Grammy Award winner, currently playing with David Grisman, the Peter Rowan Bluegrass Band, and his own electrifying group. I'm Dave Higgs, and the Keith Little Band will be appearing live on the next Bluegrass Breakdown. Saturday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're hearing uh, several interviews from our southeastern Utah correspondent, John Kovash, for the program today. Very interesting and important topic, the fight for Native American voting rights in San Juan County in southeastern Utah. And you can join this conversation. We'll get your comment in at the next break, the end of the program. You can join us at Utah Public Radio. Uh, on a line at uh, our email is upraxis at gmail.com. Phone number is 1-800-826-1495. Phil Lyman is also a current San Juan commissioner and works as an accountant in Blanding. Phil is a member of Blanding's most prominent family. Walter C. Lyman, who was a Mormon missionary, is regarded as the founder of Blanding. Phil made recent headlines when he sort of reluctantly led an illegal ATV ride into artifact-filled Recapture Canyon to protest a road closure. I caught up with him at his accounting office in downtown Blanding. I really value the, the San Juan County's unique situation of being 50% Native American, and especially with the Navajo. I've worked with different individuals on the Utah Navajo Trust Fund for years. I felt like and when I ran for commission, I made the statement to the Republican group in, in Monticello that until we recognize the, what the Navajo culture has to offer, we're going to be living below our potential in San Juan County. So there's, a, there's a, a, an initial suspicion, and I see it. I read the things that the commissioners are so racist or anti-Navajo, different things like that, and I'm thinking, I don't know where that comes from. Uh, I know it's something we don't often recognize in ourselves, so I, I take it at face value, I read it. But in my heart, I'm saying I, I'm not afraid of Navajo commissioners. I would be thrilled to, to be in a, in a county where there was more representation from Navajos, a stronger voice from Navajos. So that part of it didn't, didn't resonate with me that, that somehow the, the county was deliberately trying to exclude people. Uh, when they brought the lawsuit, the the districts that they had proposed divided Blanding into three separate districts, which I didn't think that was fair. I felt like uh, you, 
you know, the, the Voting Rights Act says you, you don't uh, separate communities of interest. And, and to me, Blanding is kind of a community of interest, and uh, Voting Rights Act says you can't gerrymander according to race. And they feel like we've gerrymandered according to race, but then they take it and they reverse gerrymander according to race, you know, create one district that's 5% Native American and the other two that have a predominance. So I think somewhere in there, there's probably a happy, a happy medium, a happy balance. There. What would be the best case scenario for reaching that happy balance? Some kind of settlement out of court, or how do you see it playing out ideally? In my mind, ideally would be that we go, that we do away with the districts and go back to an at-large vote. Um, the Native Americans have more than 50% of the population. Potentially, you could end up with three Navajo commissioners. Um, I know that they, they say in, in uh, minority situations, they don't uh, expect to see voter turnout as high as it is in the, you know, in the majority population. And, and I'm sure that's the case. We're, we're doing some things at the county level to try to help that, fix that. We're going to a mail-in ballot this year, which I think is going to get a lot more participation from, from people who have a hard time getting to the polls and things like that. So ideally, in my mind, is that we would stop talking about race and have an at-large vote and and uh, one man, one vote. May the best candidates win and 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 let the let the Navajo feel like they're being included in that. I would I would never want to exclude them from that. And like I say, I value their I value their their culture and their leadership. And and I think we're lacking that in San Juan County. It was some years back when the county first got in court over this issue. At that time, it was decided that the, the at-large was the problem, and in fact, that's typical. Right. You'd see these suits all over the country. Well, as a county, we're, we're pretty unique. I don't know of any county, well, there's not another county in Utah that has a federal district mandate on them. And again, we're unique because we're the only county that has a, a majority Native American population. The arguments against an at-large vote start to lose their their meaning in San Juan County. Yeah. The tipping point would be when voter participation increases among the, the Native Americans. You know, 30 years ago or 40 years ago when this was brought down, uh, there were a lot fewer um, Native Americans that, that could read English. They were, at a, they were at a disadvantage. I don't think we have that same situation now. Uh, I don't know, these, these lines that we draw along, along racial lines at some point, we've got to be able to move past that. Whether it's realistic to think it's going to happen soon, I don't know. There was an actually a university study done on the feasibility of just splitting into San Juan into two counties. Is that considered a, an idea that was dead on arrival, or, or, or is, is that still something that people think of as a viable possibility? It was determined at the state level and at the federal level that the southern county lacked the tax base to support itself. The, the real dilemma there is not that they don't have the taxes because they do, they've got the centrally assessed properties, the, the oil fields and those things are on the southern end of the county. The problem is it's all centrally assessed and it's pretty volatile so, so you don't have the stable property tax base that the northern end of the county would have but uh, if we were divided to if we were to divide it today on the boundaries that, that I had seen proposed back in the, from the report that was done, um, 
the southern county would have more property tax revenue than the northern county. Mm. And there's another interesting thing. If you had a southern county, from my understanding and from my reading, under treaty, because it's a Native American county, the federal government would be obligated to provide a courthouse, jail facilities, some of those other infrastructure things that would come from the federal dollar instead of from the county dollar. And if you look at uh, the rest of the uh, Navajo Nation, the schools are well-funded. They, they, they have access to funds that, that we don't have access to in San Juan County. So I'm, I'm not a proponent of splitting the county because I think it would, I think it'd be a, I don't know, for me it'd be kind of a, a step backwards, I guess, in terms of the social interaction that we, that we should be able to accomplish. But by the same token, if, uh, you know, if you have two sides of a county that want to be separated, I think that, I think it would be viable. I think it would, I think it would work for both, for both sides and, and the northern, the northern county would probably be the one that would struggle financially more than the southern county. You hear sometimes the sentiment that they aren't paying their per capita share, their, their freight on a lot of county services. Is that a legitimate issue? Or? Yeah, I've heard that, uh, you know, if, if, if you're not paying property taxes, you, you don't have a vote. And that, that argument has, it doesn't hold water for me because if, you know, people that rent aren't paying property taxes, they still have a vote. We live in a system where we have one man one vote they're citizens of the county and their vote counts as much as as any other person in the county regardless of land holdings and, and things like that by the same token i think it takes some sensitivity on both sides to recognize that um there are people that that for for whom property taxes is a pretty significant burden i guess in my world doing business here uh, in my in my office and things i, I have nothing but positive interaction with with people regardless of what their background or their race is but yeah you get into the political realm and you see a lot of a lot of anger that comes out and again I look at the history and I can see the injustices that have happened over the years I, I recognize that when that when my ancestors came to this area there were people here already it's a beautiful area I'm glad I live here I'm glad that, that my ancestors were permitted and they were welcomed since then, the county's grown and the pressures have grown. And If it comes down the line that we ever ever get to a point where we did have two Indians on the county council, are there a lot of people who, who think that would be some kind of disaster or calamity? Well, you're, you're asking about, you know, people's fears. And, and yeah, the people have certain fears, rational or irrational. In my, in my, in my mind... I would have a lot of trust in in people that are elected. In Blanding, I think it's working. I think Blanding is a better town because of the diversity and because of the the different cultures. Not that it doesn't come with some amount of of conflict and strain occasionally, but my own feeling is we're we're better off for it. You know, do I think there's equity? I, no, I think there's still a tremendous amount of of um, inequality. Phil Lyman, one of the two white members on the current three-member board of San Juan County Commissioners.
You're listening to Access Utah, and uh, our interviewer for the program today was our Southeastern Utah correspondent, John Kobosh. Thank you so much for those reports on this uh, very important topic, uh, Native American voting rights in San Juan County in southeastern Utah. Our thanks to uh, Ken Slate, uh, Steve Bowes, Mark Maryboy, and Phil Lyman for sitting down with us for those interviews, and our thanks to John Kobosh. You can comment on this issue at uh, our website, upr.org, or upraxcess at gmail.com. We're on uh, Twitter as well, at Utah Public Radio. Coming up tomorrow, we hope you join us for another episode in the ongoing series, Climate One, the latest on climate change. That's tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. StoryCorps is next, and Zesty Garden follows with Brian Earle. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. Through a partnership with Dixie Regional Medical Center, 52-year-old Liz Cummings and her 23-year-old daughter, Samantha, came to StoryCorps to remember their husband and father, Tim Cummings. Tim and I started our family in Laguna Niguel, California and we had all eight children in California. And we moved to St. George when our youngest was only about a month old. Tim's business was very successful and he uh, was able to do a lot of community projects, community plays, he was the life of the party. And it was August of 2008. He was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer we went ahead and started with chemo. But at one point, he was hospitalized for two and a half months straight. And I slept there every single night with him and would come home in the morning and get the kids to school and, and then come back during the day. The nurses were so amazing about just the number of children we had. You know, when you have eight people enter a room, it's it can be a little overwhelming. And the kids that were in college could come and do their homework in the room and plug in their computers and just be there. The colon cancer he was diagnosed with was really rapid, so we weren't sure how much time he would have. And at the time, I was a full-time student at Dixie State. I was working full-time, so in between school, night school, and full-time working, I would go straight to the hospital and be with my dad as much as I could. I remember he would constantly be sick and throwing up, and he would still go to chemotherapy in a button-up shirt, his slacks, and he would have a belt on, and his hair was done. Mm -hmm. He always looked so (laughs) sharp, even going to chemotherapy. And my dad was a magician. He always had a deck of cards, and he was famous for doing card tricks in his hospital bed or at chemo for the nurses, and they would be injecting him, and he'd say, pick a card, and they would just laugh. And It was just such a positive, happy experience, and I remember it was probably near the end, and it dawned on me how sick my dad was. I was thinking I had, like, the worst day ever, and so I came home, and um, I look up, and my dad's on the end of his bed, and he has his little barf bag, and he is just throwing up and feeling so sick and my dad was a big man dad was about six one six two ish he was mm-hmm. a big tall man and when he died he weighed about 130 pounds and he looks up at me after like in between throwing up he goes 
hi, sweetheart. How was your day? And just still upbeat. And I said, so are you feeling better or are you feeling worse? He looked kind of, he looked down at the floor and he looked up at me and he said, honey, I'm, I'm dying. It's my time to go. My first reaction was anger and you're just going to give up. And uh, he looked at me and said, honey, everything that could have gone right has gone wrong. You know, it's I, my time. It's my time. I believe that God wants me in heaven and it's my time to go. And so I hugged my dad and we had a long talk. This was our last real long talk. And, you know, I, I'll always be, be grateful for that time we had. It made me realize how fragile life is and how grateful I need to be for just every day. I just think that it makes you more appreciative to life and everyone around you and how grateful you are for the things that you have. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at DixieRegional.org. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.